Good morning. Please bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, God, we pray that you would convict us through the preaching of your word. Pray, Lord, that you would be with me as I preach your word. Praying, God, that as your word goes forth, we trust, um, as, as your word says, that it does not return empty or void, but that it fulfills its purpose. So we pray, God, that your word will fulfill its purpose this morning and that you, your son, and your spirit will be glorified in it. We just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you, uh, to invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. For this morning, we'll be taking a look at verses 15 through 17. And as a reminder, the reason the Apostle John was writing this letter was to help a group of believers clearly understand what true salvation practically looked like, what loving God and being a follower of Jesus Christ is all about. And with that, his goal was to give them a true sense of assurance when it came to their own personal salvation. We see his primary purpose clearly stated toward the end of his letter in chapter 5, verse uh, 13, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may assume, not that you may hope, but that you may know. That you may know. As we come to today's text, we will be confronted by three specific things that will help us to know. To know for sure where we personally stand in terms of our own profession of faith in Christ. When this message is all said and done, we will be able to answer the question, is my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ real and my love for him undivided and genuine? Or does my heart desire and long for something other than Christ, something more than Christ? How you answer this question will determine whether or not you are truly saved and on your way to heaven, or if you don't know Christ at all and are blindly headed for an eternity in hell. Those are the only two options that the text that we're going to look at today leaves us with. So with that said, the title of this message is A Wrong Kind of Love. A Wrong Kind of Love. And in our time together this morning, we will be confronted with three specific things that will help us inevitably answer the question that the text raises for us. First, we will see the command. Second, we will find the reason for the command. And finally, we will be given the promise that comes in obedience to this command. So, three points, if you're taking notes, the command, the reason, and the promise. Please follow along as I read 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 
Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. Now, agape love is a common characteristic that describes Christianity. This kind of love is mentioned countless times in the Gospels and throughout the rest of the New Testament. In fact, we can take this kind of love all the way back to Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned against God In chapter 3, God immediately offered a way for mankind to be forgiven in verse 15, where he promised that one day a seed would come who would be bruised for our sins and at the same time crush the serpent's head in victory, redeeming mankind from the wages of sin, which is death, both physical and spiritual, and restore the union that was broken on account of man's disobedience. God's love is then demonstrated throughout the Old Testament as his people waited for the arrival of this promised seed. Even in the rebellion of what would be most of the people of Israel, God would keep his promise to the remnant, the few who remained faithful. A promise kept in love and a promise that would ultimately find its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's only begotten Son, whom he sent into the world that so whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. Last time we were in 1 John, we looked at the depth of God's love that he uh, he had made manifest to us in his Son. A new way to love was the title of that message because although the love of God was shown to us in the Old Testament in many ways, it reached its epic culmination when God's promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When Jesus stepped into his creation to seek and save those who are lost, Luke 19.10, to live the perfect life that we fail to live and die the death that we deserve and then to be raised on the third day His resurrection would have validated the promise of God made long ago, that the seed would indeed come, Genesis 3.15, that he would indeed die, Isaiah 53, and that he would indeed rise, Psalm 16.10. In verses 7 through 14 that we looked at last time, we, we not only saw God's love for us, but we also saw how we as believers are to respond to his love. Namely, by loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then likewise by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Beginning with those in the church and extending that love out to the lost. In God's love, he gave us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, so that we might mature and grow in our walk with Christ and help others do the same. 
Love was fully realized in this gospel truth. Now just listen to how the Apostle Paul explains this gospel of love that was demonstrated to us. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we read, Have this mind, uh, mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave or servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." This is Christian love, and really, true love in all of its fullness. Love is fully devoted, it is undivided, it is subservient, it is sacrificial, and it always seeks the glory of God as its chief end. Now, all of that was necessary to say, to bring us to point number one, number one that we see in this passage, the command. Look at verse 15. John begins by saying, do not love the world nor the things in the world. Now, when we come to today's text, we find that same, kind, uh, same word for love used here, only this time it's stated in the negative. The intensity of the love is still the same, it's, it's the same Greek word uh, John uses for love, agape. What's different is the object towards which that love is now set upon. Its object and ultimate end is not God in his glory. It's not Christ and an undivided commitment to him. Instead, its object and ultimate end is the world and man's own glory, his selfish ambition, self-exaltation, and an undivided commitment to self and the things of this world. Now, John mentions the word world six times in three verses, so it's evident that he is placing a strong emphasis on it, and it is important for us to then understand exactly what he means by what he says. It wouldn't really help any of us if we didn't understand exactly what we were commanded not to love. So in order to get a sense of what John means when describing the word world, we have to take into uh, into consideration the context and what the rest of Scripture has to say about the world. Often the best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture— Now, the term world is used often in the Bible, and we don't have time to kind of do a biblical theology of the world and what the Bible has to say about it. But there are two specific areas where we can look to kind of get a sense of, maybe first to start out by saying what John is not saying. So, 
it refers to, uh, sometimes, it'll refer to the earth and the physical universe that God created in six literal days, as in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Other times, it refers to humanity in general, as in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, just taking these two, we know that John is not saying, do not love the things which God created. Right? So he's not saying that. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. Right? The sky above proclaims his handiwork, Psalm 19.1. We are to marvel at what God has created, not hate it. Because it declares his splendor, his majesty, his glory, and his magnificence. We also know that John is not saying, do not love people or humanity in general. There are endless ways that the scripture reveals to us how we should love our neighbor. So what is John referring to? Well, there is another kind of world that the scripture speaks of that John is referring to. Another kind of realm that exists, and it's in terms of following a certain course of life. A life in a realm that is controlled and governed by Satan. Ephesians chapter 2 does a good job of articulating this, where it says in verse 1 and 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at at work in the sons of disobedience. The course of this world that Satan, the prince of the power of the air, is in total opposition to God. It refers to any ideology, belief system, worldliness, or unbiblical worldview that has been lifted up against the Word of God and everything that it teaches. John is commanding us, he is imploring us, do not love or give your undivided devotion to that realm. Do not follow that course of life nor love the things that are associated with it. This is not an option that we can leave on the table today. It is a command that we are either going to obey or disobey. John, the inspired writer of the Word of God, is saying, separate yourselves completely from that kind of worldliness and the things connected to it from worldly influences, from worldly priorities, worldly entertainment, and worldly desires. And then he gives us reasons to strongly heed this command, which brings us to point number two, the reason. Look at the second half of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, this is talking about the highest form of love, and it really boils down to one object getting your full, undivided devotion. That object 
is either going to be the world and the things in the world, what John describes as worldliness governed by Satan, or it's going to be God and the course of life he has called us to follow. Something, thankfully, that has been clearly revealed to us in his record. The only choice that we have, and the only choice that we're left with. As I've said earlier, the things of Satan are in direct opposition to the things of God. If anyone willfully chooses to love the things of this world, they're rejecting the one true God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What John simply means here is that your love for God is non-existent if you love the world and the things in the world. And if you don't love God, the Bible says you are his enemy. James 4.4 makes this point absolutely clear where it says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Jesus even said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, no slave can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is because no one can serve two objects with the same kind of devotion. No one can set two objects first in their life, and, and God requires that we place him first in our own lives. If he does not have first place in everything, then your devotion, your love, is committed to the wrong things, to the things of this world. We're even des- described as God's enemies if we love those things and if our hearts are committed to those things. So this command is a serious one for us to give our attention to today. And not only give our attention to, but to obey. And the reason is clear. If you're, if you're devoted to the world, you're not devoted to God. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. John makes it plain and simple. And all the things that are in the world and from the world kind of fit into three categories. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life are in the world and from the world. They are used to describe what incites uh, the sinful desires that are already present in every human heart. And we certainly have godly desires, so desires in and of themselves are not a bad thing, but But John is clearly talking about evil desires here. 
And he starts by listing the evil desires of the flesh first. This would refer to any attitude, speech, or action that opposes the law of God. Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 uh, through 21 gives us vivid examples of what the desires and works of the flesh are. This is what it says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. As one commentator puts it, these sinful attitudes and actions mentioned here, quote, are primary characteristics of the world system and are irresistibly appealing to the corruption of the unconverted soul, close quote. This is so well stated. Man, by his very nature is sinful from the moment of his conception. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, David says in his prayer uh, to God in Psalm 51.5, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now this can only mean that David was aware that from the moment of his conception he was a sinner. We know that because we know that he was not born out of wedlock. All evil desires, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, originate in the human heart. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, he said. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are the deeds of the flesh, and they originate in the heart. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. And the world is filled with all sorts of enticements that feeds that corrupt, evil desire that springs up from the heart. What John refers to here as the flesh Now, adding to that, John continues and and says that the desires of the eyes are also something to watch out for. These would be the enticing worldly things that we are tempted when we lay our eyes upon them, when our eyes take hold of them. It can be anything really that causes you to stumble into sin against God. Anything from sex to money to power to control to drugs, alcohol, even violence. It has been said that the eyes are windows to the soul. And therefore, we need to be cautious in terms of what we expose our eyes to. As believers, we are commanded not to set our eyes on the things of this world, but instead to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13, 14, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 
One of the ways we make provision for the desires of the flesh is by yielding to the desires of the eyes. That's how it kind of incites us and enters in. Jesus gives a graphic illustration in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 29 on the importance of guarding your eyes against worldly enticements. He says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Gaze at what you're not supposed to long enough, brothers and sisters, and you just might find yourself like David when he couldn't take his eyes off of Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. His initial curiosity got the best of him. He summoned for her. He committed adultery with his best friend's wife. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, he had his best friend murdered in battle to cover up his sin, which was later exposed. The evil desires of the eyes will always take you further than you plan to go. Always. Just remember that. Now, the third thing that John mentions here that provides an avenue for sin to enter into our lives is the pride of life. Arrogance and pride is the culmination of world, uh, a worldly way of living. Driven, of course, by none other than Satan himself, it motivates all sin, including the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. It sets itself in the place of God seeking its own glory. In fact, that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? Satan came to the woman with an enticing offer to be like God, to know good from evil. And casting the bait, it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Rather than saying, no, uh, I'm okay with knowing what I know, I don't need to be like God, both Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden uh, fruit and cast the entire human race into judgment. This is the event in human history that also brought sin into the world and with it suffering and death. This is what pride does. And this is what pride did. Isaiah 14, 12 reminds us that Satan fell from heaven because he wanted to take the place, uh, the very throne that was only designed for God. And it was pride that drove him to that. 
Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16, 18. And an arrogant spirit before a fall. The pride of life is what destroys relationships and something that keeps people from entering into the kingdom of heaven. Because they're just too consumed with their own place in this life, their own selfish ambition to achieve whatever success they're after and to get the most that they possibly can out of this short life. A self-indulgence that has God far removed from their minds and their hearts. It's kind of like the self-made man or woman mentality. And that, of course, can take shape in many different ways. The point is, all that, that is in the world and from the world is not from the Father. These things do not originate from God. And that's what John is getting at. That's the reason this, this command uh, to not love the world nor the things in the world is so important. For all that is in the world is not from the Father, and the love of the Father is not in you. If that wasn't enough reason for us to heed this command, John went on to remind his readers of this very fact in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Now, if you find yourself trusting in your own abilities, trying to squeeze as much as you can out of life, indulging the flesh by taking hold of everything your eyes lay hold of and your heart desires, essentially living an indulgent worldly life as eternity fast approaches, John's words ought to sober us up real fast. The world is passing away along with its desires. All the temporal things you own, all of the temporal things you've achieved, all of those things will mean absolutely nothing in eternity. If you have not done them to the glory of God. Don't think, well, I'm 15, I have time. Or, I'm in my 20s, I have my whole life ahead of me. Whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, or 80, one thing we all have in common is that we live on borrowed time. Don't be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand as the storm was approaching. No matter how big whatever he was building grew to be, no matter what impact he made or what he was able to achieve on that sand, if your foundation isn't Jesus Christ, you will be cast into hell on the day of judgment. 
And that storm is coming for everyone. Don't waste your life by pursuing worldly pleasures. If you want your life to count, pursue Christ and live for him. If you don't know whether or not you are truly saved or have ever considered what I'm saying today, I want to tell you that it starts with repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Christ. If you do that, he will not only forgive you of your sins, but by the power of the Holy Spirit will enable you to make the most of your life by living it for his glory. Jesus died so that we can be set free from sin. But he also died to save us unto himself, to have a heart fully devoted to him. If you need proof, his resurrection will give you all the proof that you need. All right, there's one more thing that John wants us to see here. We looked at the command. We found the reason to obey this command. And lastly, we'll be looking at the promise that comes in obedience to this command. Which brings us to the third and final point here, the promise. And the verse 17 And the world is passing away along with its desires. We already read that. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Separation from God for those who love the world should give them every reason to fear because judgment is coming. They will one day stand before a holy, righteous God in judgment something that must occur if God is God because he is divinely holy and righteous. But those who have repented of their sins, who have placed their faith in Christ, have nothing to fear because they who do the Father's will have been sealed with a promise. For this is the promise which God himself made to us. 1 John 2.25 Eternal life. A promise that can never be broken. A promise made by the one who cannot lie. And a promise that will find its fulfillment in eternity. You say, wait. What's the will of God? What's the will of God that John is referring to here? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Let's see what Jesus has to say in John chapter 6, uh, verse 40, to kind of start unpacking this. He says this, For this is the will of my Father, that whoever beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. This is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how, know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust or desires like those who do not know God. Talking about the Gentiles. That is the will of God. It is the will of God for those whom he chose to save, to believe in Christ and be saved. It is the will of God for those who are saved to be sanctified, meaning separated from a life of habitual sin. doesn't mean that we're never going to sin, but it's a separation from living or practicing that kind of lifestyle, being characterized by those type of things. And it is the will of God that we receive that which he promised to us eternal life and to have that great assurance. That is the will of God and that is the promise we receive from this command if we obey. And those who truly love God are given the grace to desire to obey and also given the grace to be able to be obedient to this command. 1 John 5, 3, By this you know that you love God if you keep his commandments and they are not burdensome to you. Brothers and sisters, as our time comes to an end, I want to assure you of something that you have, okay? Okay. If you are living a life of continual repentance, that is refusing, excuse me, that is confessing your sins to God and turning away from those sins on a daily basis, and if in your heart of hearts you want nothing more than to exhaust every single gift that God has gifted you with for His glory, I want to assure you, and, and the text assures you, that you have eternal life and that you will never lose what God has promised and given you. Because the mark of someone who is genuinely saved and abides forever with Christ is someone who loves what God loves and hates what God hates. In this life, we cannot be perfect as God is perfect. But our heart's desire is to pursue that kind of perfection, knowing that it'll only come to us when we enter into his glory forever in heaven. And as someone who is constantly repenting of their sins and always trusting God for the future promises that he's revealed to us in Scripture— we have the assurance that comes with it. So the takeaway, the application is very simple. Real, genuine Christians do not live for the passing pleasure of this world. They live for Christ. 
and the eternal reward they will one day receive from him in heaven. That's what Christians live for. The application of this text is to obey the command and store up for, your treasure, um, for yourselves treasures in heaven. Making every moment that you live here on earth count for Christ. Nothing we do for God, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant it is, all of those things, big or small, is significant in our Savior's eyes. It all matters, every bit of it. And we're not called to live we're not, to call, we're not called to live in a cave, to be completely separated um, from, the, from the world in that way. Because Scripture tells us to be in the world and not of the world, right? We need to let the light that we have in Jesus Christ shine brightly. So we are not called to a life of isolation. We're just called to a life of obedience to what the Word of God has said. So if you're hard-pressed for a New Year's resolution, resolve today that you will repent of your sins and live every moment of every day and every situation to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, For whatever you do, whether eating or drinking, do it all to the glory of God. In Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do it with all of your heart as unto the Lord, not unto man. You commit yourself to living for Christ in this way, and you will make much of your time here on earth. However long that may be. Now for those of you who are sitting out here today and are saying something like, man, I, I really wasted my life. I lived for all the things that God hates and that fits into Satan's realm. Well, if you're feeling that conviction today and you're saying that, that's a good thing. I want to urge you to repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. Today, when you hear his voice through his word, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15. Dying to self and laying aside all worldliness will be the best decision that you've ever made in this life. Resolve in your heart today to truly repent, to truly lay down your life in faith to Christ. And he will offer you the grace of forgiveness and even the faith necessary to save you. Let's pray. Father, our time is gone, but your word remains as it always will. Thank you that we have your word to save us. For in it, the gospel truth has been clearly revealed to us. We give you praise, Lord Jesus, that you stepped into your creation to seek and save those who were lost.
no matter how broken or battered our lives have become because of our sin, you have chosen to redeem us when we were most unworthy of your love. And having given us your Holy Spirit, guard our hearts against all worldliness. Forgive us, O God, for pursuing things that are fading away. Help us to make the most of our lives by living every second for your glory. And Heavenly Father, for those who are sitting here today separated from you, in love with the world and the things of this world, Lord, we pray that you would give them life. Grant them genuine saving faith to not only save them, Lord, from judgment that's fast approaching, but to also save them to live a life that truly matters for your glory. Lord, we commit all of these things and trust that, uh, as we prayed earlier, that as your word goes forth, it will never return void or empty. Lord, accomplish your purpose even today. We ask this all in Christ. Amen.